time of Reagan and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. Dun, 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 dun. It's it's ladies' <laughs> night here. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> You've been waiting. This is week three for all those who are just tuning in late to the party. You've got two more weeks to uh, go through the previous two iterations of the Terminator franchise. Oh yes, welcome again to Terminator Month. Yes, it's uh, it's a rough going from here. Let's just say. <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, this is with us talking about the first non-James Cameron, non. Brad Fidel, non Linda Hamilton Terminator non, movie. Non just about everything but Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, from the year 2003, directed by Jonathan Mostow, mm. who I was going to say is famous for, but has directed uh, Breakdown uh, Surrogates, yes. which came out fairly recently, yeah. and co written by John Brancato and Michael Ferris, who co wrote The Game and the Fincher movie, and Catwoman. And Catwoman <laughs> also did surrogate. So this yes. is like a surrogate's reunion or a surrogate's precursor. I uh, This came before surrogate. Yes. The Bruce Willis robot right. body movie. Right. So, yeah. Um, this was the first Terminator movie at this point in 12 years. Yeah. And it shows. Yeah. It's it, a it's a it's a post it's a post uh, age of CGI uh, sort of pre sequel reboot explosion f- fervor. Uh, movie and it 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 doesn't feel like either right and it's it's farther away from the source material not just because James Cameron this was largely an auteur style movie I mean he yeah. had the Galen Hurd I think was his co writer was it Galen Hurd on Terminator two yes Galen Hurd was the was the yeah. co writer so I mean you don't have that creative source anymore n- n- no no your 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 character is created by in the writing yeah credits. that's that's wait what... wait a minute wait a minute mike we're actually here in the studio for another person hi yes, that's right <laughs> we almost forgot we just wanted to dive into yes, yes of course the we are... schlock it's yeah it's it's a it's a molasses of, of mediocrity so i just we want we don't want to dive into this alone of course we're in the studio with uh, dave brulette who is one of the hosts Hello. of the hands-free football podcast yes yes thank you it is an absolute honor to be in this room and and glorious Valverde. It's more humid than I would have expected even after watching Predator. Oh. <laughs> the kookaburras are <laughs> chirping. So, uh, Dave, we are very happy to have you here. Um, this, of course, is your first time on the show. Yes. And one of the things we always like to ask people, um, could you recap us a bit on your history with the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger? And are you a fan of this guy? Yes. Uh, so I feel like my, I remember there was that time in the late eighties. I was born in 79. So the eighties was when I was too young to be watching these movies, but every once in a while you could sneak one in and you see all the horrible stuff that, Oh my God, there's blood and there's gore and there's shooting and there's swearing and there's boobs and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, ah, what is this? And so my first real movies with them were, 
I want to say the first Terminator, and then I saw Total Recall, and then I want to say I never saw a lot of like sort of the iconic ones. I never saw Commando, or I think the first time I saw The Running Man was when you guys did the panel on it, and I watched Whoa. to prepare for that. Wow. Uh, or maybe I watch after because you guys just ex- described this glorious madness. I'm like, I have to see this. <laughs> but um, no. And so, yeah, it was like the Terminators and the Total Recalls and um, the Predators was sort of when I really first got and When, you know, you go out and you sneak out that rated R movie that your mom probably doesn't want you to watch. Hell yeah. And so that was sort of growing up. And. I remember the sense when I was growing up, because every once in a while you watch an old movie and it was like, you know, something like Spartacus and you see Kirk Douglas and he's supposed to be muscular. And when you're used to seeing this mountain of muscles that is Arnold Schwarzenegger, you look back at that like, he looks like a guy. Like, he just looks like a normal guy. (laughs) It wasn't until I was much older that I realized how much work it takes just to get to normal guy in my head. Right. So how much more (laughs) it would take to get to this monstrosity that is... Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger are these 80s mega action heroes. Just It's such a strange thing to look at that now. I think you just constantly walk around carrying weight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but when you were a teenager, would you go choose to go, after, your, after 13 or 14, would you choose to go to a Schwarzenegger movie? I did, particularly in the early 90s, sort of his heyday, the... Yeah. Those times, I would definitely say I was a, a big fan. You know, I, heyday like Junior and <laughs> Collateral Damage, Eraser. Eraser. that time. <laughs> I mean, he was still kind of early-ish Arnold. I mean, yeah. Arnold is kind of weird because his career comes a lot later than what we think of as a major star nowadays. Where right, they kind of jump into superstardom in their twenties. But I think Arnold kind of got started really in his early thirties. With something like, say, Terminator. So his 30s and 40s and maybe his early 50s is the, I guess you could say the brackets we put around, you know, vintage Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the 90s was kind of the last gasp of the very high, you know, physicality that he would get out of an action movie. And I think that in a lot of ways, Terminator 3 is the last gasp of that age of Arnold. That the last time that you could really believably ask him to take his shirt off right, right. and uh, get into a physical yes. fight where it's not an obvious stunt double with a CGI head. Sure, sure. This was like the last time he would get to do that. Yeah. So um, also... Oh, wait, he didn't answer if he's a fan oh, of Arnold or not. I, I would have to say absolutely 100% yes. There okay. is just a joy to Arnold movies, even the bad ones, even the schlocky ones. Like I watched another one that I never watched until you guys did a panel on it, but End of Days. Oh, oh my just, God. It was such a mess of a movie, but it's just such a joy to see him going around fighting Satan. I mean, like, where where did that seem like a good idea? But it just it's just so much fun to watch him on screen. He's so... I iconic. He's just like he he takes up space. He's like this, <laughs> yes, he's like this gravitational field on film that everything revolves around. And nice. yes, it, it's fantastic. And so yes, I absolutely am a fan. Cool. And so today, of course, we're talking about the first of a franchise that he's doing without the original creator. And actually, as far as I can tell, Arnold doesn't do a lot of sequels. Period. That he doesn't have to come back, but this is the one he keeps coming back to. Mm-hmm. And again, like I mentioned before, it had been 12 years since he'd been in this series. And it seems like this is the the one series that Arnold simply cannot say no to. We're talking Terminator 3. <laughs> so, Dave, if you had to sum up the plot of Terminator 3 in a paragraph or two, what is Terminator 3 about? 
Terminator 3 is about the post, um, post like pushing off Judgment Day. We've created, or, you know, end of Terminator 2, we've staved off the threat of the end of the world. And so, what does the world look like when you're just waiting because you know it should have happened? And it hasn't yet. And then you have a whole bunch of nonsense to or in the middle that doesn't matter to get to the end of no, here's Judgment Day. And that's the plot of the film. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's like a great beginning. There's nonsense action scenes and absurd macho bullshit, as you guys love to say, and then amazing ending. Well, yeah. I I mean <laughs> All right, let's go home. Let's that's, wrap it up. that's it. It's, yeah. there's a lot of absurd shit in I mean there's no Sarah Connor. There's just John Connor and the Terminator. So I like to I like to think of this movie as kind of like RoboCop three, you know, where it's now an order of magnitude removed from its sort of original, its sort of original iteration, and it looks worse. Like it, there's something about it looks off. It looks like an imitation. And if it weren't for like the main character being replaced by another actor because obviously Arnold is in this one and they paid him a shit ton of money to do so <laughs> so much money. like you know if, if this were really like a RoboCop 3 with too big of a budget um as I think it is maybe they should have replaced him with you know Dolph Lundgren or something that would have made it a true RoboCop 3 but it's that thing where it's got a sheen to it that it's aping the original aping the sort of originals that came before it but it just like just doesn't fly something is things are overly goofy things are they're trying to make all of these totally on the nose visual and and dialogue references to things that have came before and it it just it does not survive on its own at all. I think the thing that that really is really jarring to me after having gotten a chance this year to see um Terminator 2 on the big screen mm. is and rewatching that for Terminator month is that Terminator 2 and Terminator 1 look like great movies. They look cinematic that I probably am it, I'm I'm detached enough from from uh, the vocabulary of film school that I probably can't articulate this incredibly well, but there's something about the look of Terminator Three that feels like high end television rather than a movie. Sure, absolutely. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the way that a James Cameron movie looks that there's something about it that feels big. Right. It doesn't matter if it's Aliens. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Titanic or uh, The Abyss, these movies look great. And you could see the sets that appear in those movies that are really well built and are and are remarkable shot in a different way and looking like this. Mm. Because this feels more like a standard movie. And I think in a lot of ways, there's that look to a James Cameron movie that I think you could say is comparable to like a Christopher Nolan movie. Sure. That if you shot Batman Begins differently you could have a very silly looking main character, but there's something about this big operatic, large scale sort of sheen to it yeah. that carries over in the earlier Terminator movies, even in Terminator one, where they had kind of a Canon films budget. Right. Right. It still looks good. There's a grit to it. They actually take that low budget and turn it to their advantage. But here it is shiny where the budget is evident that there is money here. It, I mean, this is this should be the, the the thing that should stand us apart from the rest of it. I mean, this was this movie was one hundred and eighty seven million dollars of of independently produced money, the the most expensive independently produced movie in history up to this point. Um, and of course, Canon Films had totally imploded before this point, and so they put together all of this money to make this movie. The next movie, the huge 
you know, prequel, reboot, whatever Genesis was, cost less than this movie did to make. And yet it still looks like the sets, like the Cyberdyne sets, look like they're a Sci-Fi Channel original movie sets. (laughs) Somehow you're able to translate, you know, like nearly a quarter billion dollars into something that looks not quite like a cinematic sort of... uh, set piece in the way that the Terminator movies are. And I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I don't either. I, I think another real problem, though, too, and this plays into the entire problem with the movie, is because it has been 12 years since Terminator 2 came out, that we've kind of deified that movie. Mm-hmm. And because that, let's just kind of have memories. Of, this is a big deal movie, where Terminator was kind of a cool, grungy, little, low-budget sci-fi horror film. Where there's an unstoppable killer who just wants to kill this one woman and this one grungy guy that's trying to save her. And when you look at this one, it's sort of like a copy of a copy. Yeah. That there's this yeah. element of degradation between this and Terminator 2. And it's so clearly trying to be the safe kind of sequel. The one that says, I want to do the exact format and style and plot of the one that preceded it, sort of the Ghostbusters 2, mm-hmm. where you just replace Walter Peck for uh, Kurt Fuller. <laughs> and you have another scene where, oh, this is the part where we do the Ghostbusting montage. And then that leads into, oh, now we reveal the big threat of the movie. And then this bureaucrat locks us up for a while. Right. And it's there's this complete... You know, what, you know, paint by numbers kind of look to your movie, and I think in a lot of ways that's what this is to Terminator Two. And whenever you do that, the real danger is if there's not enough new material, that the comparisons are inevitable, and the comparisons are always unflattering. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like one of my ongoing things with almost all movies like this is that what makes them frustrating is not where they're bad because bad movies are fun and bad movies are happening. We actually enjoy watching bad movies, but with those flashes where you can see where they're really good, there are things there. There are certain aspects of this movie that really work well. Like I love the character of Caitlin Brewster. I think that like injecting sort of that new life, that outsider perspective to give you the, you know, carry the audience into this. It's like, remind you what it's like. Oh my God. You know, we've been living with the Terminator um, sort of mythos for 20 years at this point but for somebody who doesn't understand any of this to go walking in and seeing a giant robot get shot in the face she's the she's the replacement sarah connor right because so sarah connor is that pov character in the first one who has to absorb like the oh my god this is true through it i mean i I would respectfully disagree with you like claire danes looks like in this movie as the sort of production history suggests, which is that she's learning her lines as the movie is going. <laughs> yes. Like, there's... I... I they... Um, I, we'll talk about this more next week on Terminator Month, but the idea of after Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese needing to inject romantic stories under the into the backdrop of a Terminator movie is extremely problematic. Because you have all this... You have this interplay. Like, this movie stops so many times to put John Connor and Catherine Brewster together to try to be try them to hash out like I'm stuck with you Mike Kripke's basement like all like all these get make them have a history together because they eventually have to be husband and wife and they know this beforehand Genesis does this terribly also where all these characters are destined to be together but at first they don't like each other well ultimately what that does is it undermines one of the big plot points and themes of the series up until this point which is this is a very destiny-heavy movie. 
Yeah. In mm. a series that I think up to this point had had kind of an anti-Destiny bent, which, I mean, that's the big John Connor speech right. that he sends Kyle Reese back. Right. There is no fate, but what we make for ourselves. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, so what? You know, oh, that Miles Dyson guy who had that heroic sacrifice in the last movie? Well, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> then what he managed to do is essentially stave this off so that regular people get to have Super Nintendo for probably about five or six more years before the world blows up. But in the end, what we don't end up getting is a sense that these people can actually affect the the future in any real way. That this, yeah. it, it kind of undoes that um, and makes this more of a destiny thing. But if we're going to say something nice about this movie, and that this is not a bad movie. I think that a lot of people that might be listening to this may I have I want to hear Im- you say something nice, because I don't have anything <laughs> nice to say about this okay, movie. Okay, really? uh, I want to say this. The idea of John Connor as the lead character. I like the idea of the failed almost messiah as mm-hmm. a lead. Mm-hmm. The idea of this guy who, as a kid, had been had this shit hammered into his head by his mom that one day you were going to be the the hero, the guy who saves the world from the robot holocaust. And then I'm going to lead you all over Latin America and all over the, the western half of this country, hooking up with, like, army guys and survivalists and teaching you all the things that you're going to need to know and saying, by the way, you're anti-robot messiah guy. And then what happens if you prevent that? That you have to... You basically blew up a factory... You prevented that dark future that your whole life, from age zero to age ten, had all been about, and now you just have to kind of go back to being a guy who just kind of wanders around, and you don't know how to be a normal guy at that point. Um, and the idea of making peace with it, like, I don't want this future, I don't want this destiny, and then having it thrown back at you, that can be cool. I think there's something to that. I think the downside is that this is another movie with not the John Connor that we hear about in the first two movies. Right. Uh, this is another proto John Connor that John Connor is this almost that guy from the beginning, <laughs> sitting there silently with the scars at the beginning of Terminator two. Right. He's not that guy that Kyle Reese talks about in these glowing terms. He's not the guy who Skynet is afraid of. Okay. Well then I'd say the weakness is, is cause the entire second movie spent the entire time for him being not John Connor is that you never, ever get to see him be John Connor, if unless you accept at the end where he where he says over the microphone in the bomb shelter, "I'm in charge." I'm in charge, or like he's crying. He's like, "I am." Oh, okay, but we still don't. We st- it's, it never. There's never a moment like Sarah Connor's arc in the first movie where uh, you know Kyle Reese has been shot and they're going through the factory and she's like, "On your feet, soldier." She spends the most of the entire movie being helpless and weak and scared. And and you see that one moment where she steps up and she's like, "Okay." We're going to win because I have the the drive in myself to be able to do that. You never, he just, this John Connor just gets led around and is constantly running ahead of the Terminator with Catherine Brewster and just ends up at the end. He's he, he's the big Lebowski in this story. He does have to be kind of smacked around by the Terminator at one point because right. he just starts whining. Right. And, uh, I mean, he picks him up by the throat. And, <laughs> don't, and I, You mean Terminator Freud? He's Terminator that, Freud. He's, <laughs> it's, he's constantly uh, psychoanalyzing John Connor. It's it's really weird. Um, that's I like the idea of the failed almost messiah. That part I do kind of actually like. I like the idea of um, I like the highway chase. 
It's not the best but, Terminator action I, sequence, I, but it, I think, you actually remember it at the yeah, end of the movie. Yeah, I think I think the chase with the you said with the crane truck. You mean the crane truck? Yeah, uh, uh, I, that's that's great. Except for the sound design is yes. so awful. There's like jaguar sounds for the explosions, like a wow. <laughs> that's not the worst part of the sound design. No, well, the worst. Uh, oh well, there's it's a terrible sound design. But I think their choices are dumb. Like you know, they're going up off the sidewalk onto the lawns, and there there's like a bounce castle and. The, it, the, the truck company. There's yeah. There's like it is so, so stupid. It's like Joel like, Schumacher, Batman, and Robin. <laughs> yeah, you suddenly turned into Looney Tunes here. That's that's the phrase right there. That Dave just said Looney Tunes. <laughs> and the thing that this movie does that I think ultimately harms it more than anything is it doesn't like bound over that line because there's a tone that a Terminator movie has. That yes, there are moments of humor and levity in Terminator movies. But I think ultimately they have to be tension relief. Yeah. That these are people that are being hunted well, by an unstoppable killer. And every so often, if you just do that for two hours, it wears people down to the point they don't feel anything. And you need these little moments of levity to give you a breath. Well, the joke has to be um, Arnold Schwarzenegger steps out of the bar and Bad to the Bone starts playing. Mm -hmm. The joke can't be Arnold Schwarzenegger puts on a pair of glasses that are shaped like stars that he got from the the, the gay exotic dancer. Yeah, I, I actually really guy. loved that joke. Out of <laughs> I <laughs> hate that so much. I, here's the thing. I This was before... I Reboots were not really a common thing in 2003. Like We were right at the sort of front edge of the sort of fan service need, needing to be shoved in every film, and so those little nods weren't tiresome at that point when i when i saw this movie the first time i it wasn't like oh god of course they have to like turn the, the head on the um leather jacket and sunglasses thing so they're gonna do this it was actually i did not expect that because they're just they seem to be hitting all the same beats like you said they're kind of remaking this first movie and so they're hitting all the same beats and then they when they turn one on his head and pull up this, i thought that was hilarious but they, oh. they, they but they do the same beats but they don't are not motivated so like he takes off those glasses and he finds a truck and there is a pair of glasses on the, you know, on the windshield. But the reason why he needs sunglasses in the first movie is because the flesh is stripped away from his face and he has to take out his it's eye. Disguise. And he needs to hide. He needs to not be a Terminator. The reason why this movie has him do it is because that's what he does. That's what the right. Terminator looks like. Yeah. Except the thing that kind of gets me, and this is that Looney Tunes thing, too. If you look at the same scene from Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger walks naked into a bar and gets clothing from a guy. The tone is so completely different that it's actually played out like a horror movie. This is a guy who walks right. up to a stranger and says, give me your clothes right now. They And he, like, brutalizes those people. Yeah, he does. He doesn't not kill people until John Connor tells him to not kill people. <laughs> he stabs a dude through the arm. I mean, he pins this guy to a pool table with a switchblade. He throws that guy on the stove. Right. I mean, he acts like a Terminator. In this one... It's that not that the jokes shouldn't be there. It's that they go that step too far into farce, into parody, into spoof. Like when he walks in and it's a strip joint and it does a cartoon zoom on the sign that says like the Pleasure yeah. Men fashion it show. It looks like Batman 66. It's like it a goes, tilt. Yeah. And that, that's <laughs> the same thing that the thing with the sunglasses does. Right. Is it just that step over the line into spoof. Where it's spoofing Terminator. And the same thing happens when um, they're, they're escaping from the cemetery with that arsenal in the, in the coffin. And the car is all shut up. And, her, and Arnold is driving that hearse. And he finally stops at that campsite. 
And when the car stops, it falls apart like the fucking Blues Brothers car. <laughs> I was like a Tommy boy, but same and kind of same joke. That would be cartoonish enough, but the the sign on the side of the hearse says Valley of Peace. Right. And it's like it's so on the nose. And the same thing you mentioned, the sound design. The reason I was bringing up that and Looney Tunes in conjunction is there's this bit where... In the middle of a largely good action sequence, Arnold is hanging off the end of this crane that the TX is driving down the street trying to murder John Connor. And she sees Arnold, so she swings the arm of this crane over and smashes him into the front of a fire truck. And then you see the empty crane where Arnold used to be, and it makes this cartoon squeak. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's like... Just don't do that fucking sound effect, because then you see Arnold looking, you know, with that serious look on his face stuck in the front of that fire truck with a wah-wah kind of vibe. <laughs> and the only thing he doesn't have is cartoon soot on his face. <laughs> it's such a fucking Wiley Coyote movie. And that's a part that, that just gets me, is little moments like that that go just too far. That if you pulled a couple of those elements away, it could work. Because the, the humor that comes out of a character like the Terminator... Is that he has no sense of humor and sees things right. literally. Right. The reason he says silly things in Terminator 2 is a 10-year-old is teaching him how to talk. Right. And it's teaching him how to be cool and how to hide as a human. I, I, and this I, one, he's just doing it on his own. I think there's something to be... The, my comparison to RoboCop is... we should this, this should follow, right? RoboCop has the thing where there are lots of, like, goofy shit in that movie. Like, the I'd buy that for a dollar guy. These weird interludes. These weird... Uh, things that happens as a part of the movie, but it's because the universe is ridiculous, right? Yeah. The universe is is cartoony in and of itself. In this one, the universe is like the universe of Terminator Two: Judgment Day, where it would be it'd be commonplace for you to see a woman grasping onto a fence, having her flesh blown off by nuclear fire while screaming at the top of her lungs, and that's juxtaposed against like you know the Term- Terminator X's boobs inflating when a cop pulls her over, like. They th- this will not stand, man. Yeah, this, <laughs> this aggression will not. Stand. It just goes into a it goes into a dumb place. That Terminator yeah. had never been dumb, and it seems so separated from that original grimy action film that it doesn't really make sense. But again, I get this is that distance that it's been twelve years since the last one, so we've sort of deified Terminator Two, and we remember the wrong things about it, and we. We ex- we extend the things that we remember about, oh, yeah, the Terminator says funny things. Or it was really funny when he did this thing. But we forget that there was a, a level of seriousness under that. The joke of Arnold being too literal in Terminator 2 is he's told by a child that he can't kill people, so he shoots a dude's legs out. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, holy shit. And you're like, you know, this thing was built for murder, right? Then you're basically treating him like he's your pal robot. And you have to be specific with him. Otherwise, he's like, he'll live. And there's not enough (laughs) of that in that. There is one kind of good line that I actually really like, the place where I think the humor does actually work in Terminator 3. I bet I know which line you're talking about right here. It's when they're in the the camper and John and... I'm, I Catherine said, Brewster. Catherine. Okay, I yeah. said Caitlin earlier. Um, but when John and Catherine are talking about, kind of flirting about, talking about being in middle school and kissing each other. And, right? Is this a part? No. I thought you were talking about we no. used this to castrate dogs. No. Uh, no. <laughs> Which, that one I was like, okay, he's it's, a scumbag. Yeah, he, it's it's weird. Yeah, but the, the part that I was thinking of is there's a part where they've just escaped the action sequence on the highway. Mm-hmm. Arnold is driving the veterinary car. 
He's got John in the passenger seat, and they've kidnapped uh, Catherine Brewster and thrown her in the back. And he, Arnold opens up to the back of the truck and says, Catherine Brewster, have you sustained injury? And she says, drop dead, asshole. He's like, I am unable to comply. <laughs> that's the place where it kind of works, because that's a place where it actually makes sense for him to say that. Mm-hmm. Because it's a place where, no, that is uh, antithetical to my mission. I cannot do that. Sorry. I will obey uh, I will obey orders, but not that order. And there can be a serious component to him doing a silly thing, but it's only silly if you're a human. Um, right. A lot of the bits just don't work. Um, it's the same sort of thing that Otho's kind of verges on creepy, where at the end where Judgment Day starts to happen, that they've uploaded this system to stop this super virus that is apparently stopping people from buying things at Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> and... I, this, no, this is the end of the world. I mean, yeah, it's I mean, your, you can't order uh, triple-breasted uh, bimbos on your hotel, <laughs> the hotel room cable. I mean, things That's are just why. kind of over. You know, they, the, the there's a problem with the gas pumps at the gas station. There's all this shit right. that's been going on. It, right. It's sort of in the background of the plot that there is a super virus that's just sort of fucking with everything. And there's a conflict uh, between the people at, at the military about whether they want to turn Skynet on and essentially treat it like Norton antivirus. (laughs) (laughs) And what's kind of interesting about that is that uh, we, we have this kind of super virus, but um, when everything starts to actually happen, the creepy bit that I'm talking about is that, one of these drones attacks them, and it does look like a miniaturized version of the future drones. Right. The, right. the ones that are wiping out humans in the post-apocalypse. Um, Catherine Brewster picks up this machine gun and just guns this thing down in a moment that gives her more of a I'm becoming a hero moment than John ever gets. Yes. And he looks at her, his future wife, and says, you remind me of my mother. That's how you prevent a marriage from happening. <laughs> that, that, that's going to do more to change the future of that relationship than uh, Miles Dyson dropping that model on the detonator. <laughs> that's, that's fucking weird. I just know that if somebody says that, I'm not dating that person. <sighs> so I want to talk about the T, the Terminatrix. The T, oh, the TX. God, I hate that phrase, Terminatrix. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's the TX. It's the where they decided that they couldn't make a villain, and they still couldn't make a, be- a villain that's better than the T1000 because the T1000 is just kind of ultimate badass. So it's kind of like a Terminator, kind of like a T1000, and also has an arm that can turn into a giant plasma cannon for no reason whatsoever. But beyond that, this Terminator has secret wizard powers that she's able to control any machines, like even machines that don't have any computers in them. Like she can drive police cars. By touching her finger into it, and somehow she can make the it, the pedal go down and the steering wheel turn, like <laughs> make physical things in real life actually move, even though these cars are not driven by computers. This isn't like these aren't Teslas here. That's this exa- is, this that is a- 2003, and somehow she's able to have like this symphony of four emergency cars <laughs> chasing after you know John Connor and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you're like, okay, well she just has magic powers now. Uh, she also <laughs> is able to test DNA by tasting blood. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, which she does at one point, which is kind of weird. I mean. It would kind of make sense that they might have... I mean, they clearly clawed John Connor's face at some point in the future. Imagine they kept a blood sample so they know what they're looking for. They keep detailed files. It's it's kind of weird, though. The detailed files sometimes work against you because when she's going around L.A., and this is a touch I actually like, that John Connor's off the grid. We can't really send anyone back to kill John Connor, so let's just kill his underlings. 
is that she pulls into that fast food restaurant uh, to kill this guy working there who will be one of John Connor's right-hand guys in the future. And that guy's full name is on his name tag. And I can tell you as somebody who's been a service employee how deeply uncomfortable I would be with any job that would require me to put my last name on my name tag. And and this is an exaggerated version of the worst case scenario of that situation. If somebody knows my last name, that someone will come after me. But it's it's also weird, and this is just a random nitpicky thing. Um, the drive through is on the passenger side of her car in that scene. I had not Holy shit, that. it is. <laughs> I think it's... What in, the fuck? It's entirely because they want her car to face the camera. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really fucking weird. Because <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say, that would be the biggest fucking pain in the ass that if you don't have a passenger to order fast food there. <laughs> and I've actually been to like one or two fast food restaurants over the years that do that, and it, you have to stop and get out of your car and walk around and give them your money. Uh, I, I think my thing with the Terminatrix, and sorry, I love that term, so I'm gonna keep calling it that. But not so much like character-wise, but just from a pure, pure filmmaking standpoint. Like this was made in a time where they thought they could do anything with CG and it would stand up, and almost none of it actually does. Like what makes a T2 perfect is that was what looked good in CG in yeah. 1992. That's what they could do and make it still look Metallic realistic. Goop. Yeah, and they chose scenes very carefully to make it so, you know, mostly at night, mostly in places where if it was going to refract the background, reflect, excuse me, the background around it, it was something that, you know, the ILM could do very well. So they chose those scenes very carefully. In this one, she's just walking around in daylight and There's a lot of daylight in this movie. And, yeah. That's another thing. Is that true. Terminator 1 and 2, a lot of the scenes are at night. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really jarring to have them driving around in the daytime doing stuff. There's only a couple scenes like John getting chased from the mall in the daytime. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, most of this is at night. And now most of this movie is in the daytime. Terminator seems like the kind of movie that most of it should take place at night. Right. right. You're, yeah. you're asleep at home. So the the TX. Um, oh, yes. What do we think of the TX? I mean, we have Christina Loken is is our actress playing the TX. I, I don't know. There's there's a it's it's hard to look back on it now and to think all the times that he tries to dunk her head into a toilet and stuff, and you're just <laughs> yeah. sort of like, I know it. I know it shouldn't actually matter because it's a robot, not an actual. You know, the 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 TX turns into the schlumpy fiance loser guy. Yeah. Who I I hope I'm never as much of a loser as that motherfucker is. No, that's a, that's the best kill she gets in the whole movie. Yes. It was when she's disguised as him. Is that he's in the back of that cop car and. <laughs> He pu- <laughs> that's one of the best well done kills because it's so sudden it's not played for last and suddenly there's an arm coming through that cop's chest through the back seat and she just reaches over and starts driving that way she does use her hand on the wheel that time that's true and no, I- her, no her worst kill is when she kills Scott the fiance and off, off camera you hear a buzz off like a <laughs> And then, then like it's like Klingon blood splattering on a picture <laughs> yeah. of him and Catherine Brewster, and you're like, that's that's awful, it's uh, terrible. I'm trying to figure out how she kills the woman that she takes the clothes from at the beginning because there's like a. Is that like a Patrick Swayze Roadhouse throat rip? Because that's what it sounds like. It definitely sounds like there's tendons in that. I don't. Know. But I think Kristana Loken is okay. Yeah, well, what what do you what, what can you do with that character? I think there's a lot of points that don't make any sense. Like, what is it? I'm trying to remember. I think it's when they're at the veterinary hospital at the beginning, 
and she first realizes that John Connor is there because mm-hmm. not her real target. And then she gets this look of surprise in her face, like mouth agape, like, oh, and you're like, the Terminator I, would never have that expression. Am I the only one who thought that looked a little orgasmic? Like she <laughs> yes. tasted the blood. So, oh. She does show emotion at weird points. Like at the very end when Arnold about blows her up with his like battery. His, oh, she has like nuke, puppy eyes. She's like, oh, no. It's like there's a couple moments of rage as a robot that are a little weird. Because um, if you notice that the first two Terminators, um, Arnold in the first one and then Robert Patrick in the second one, there's a determination. And I think the thing that makes their performance really good is how they don't break eye contact when they're accidentally creating carnage. Right. Because they don't give a shit about that. It, it creates that idea of the single-mindedness. And occasionally, they'll dart their head to the left when they hear something important. Like, no, it's very very, huh. very reptilian, right? Yeah, and I kind of like that about it. It's cold, but it also adds to that idea you can't reason with this thing. This thing has one purpose. It, will, it doesn't care about uh, blowing its own cover. It doesn't care about uh, carnage. It doesn't care about collateral damage. It just wants to do the this movie. one thing. Yeah. It definitely doesn't care about that movie. It wants to cause Judgment Day before 2002 yeah. so that it can it can cause that. They kind of fail in Terminator 3 on that. But I don't know. There are just, such, they're, they're just also choices that are so goofy like her head's spinning around and there's like, like a little yeah. like windy clock sound. Or when they're fighting and he's behind her and she wraps her legs around like 180 and then her arms around, and then her head around, and you're just like, okay, this character can just do anything. That's why I'm saying they just gave this character magical powers, yeah, they and she can a... do anything that the plot requires that she could do. But she's kind of doomed from the beginning, and this is mm. the thing that every Terminator bad guy after Terminator 2 has, which is that it's running up against the fact that they created the perfect bad guy. Mm-hmm. The Terminator 2 T-1000 is a way better killing machine than the TX, yep. mm-hmm. because yeah. he can... He's not stopped by a door. He can just crawl under it. He can disguise himself as anything that he can immediately repair himself because he's goo. I think the first time you see him glitch a little bit is the uh, liquid nitrogen thing. Yeah. But even then, he's like 98% capability. Mm -hmm. And the TX gets her plasma cannon blown off simply so that she can't use it later. Yeah. And that's a way she gets damaged in a way that... And, and then she picks a flamethrower, which, like, if you're going up against a Terminator, you should know this is going to be a useless weapon <laughs> against this thing. So it's like, and she, it shows a list of weapons that she has, including one named after Donald's Rums, Rumsfeld, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah, there's like a rum out of something. Yeah. And, but, this, and then picks, like, the, the least effective possible weapon. Like, I see, you know, they show her spring. Uh, fire at a tree and a guy runs away. I'm just That's like... That's the smartest fucking guy in the Terminator <laughs> franchise, by the way. That guy who runs away is if there is the stupidest person that pops up and their constant trope in Terminator is there's some kind of escape scene in a car and the the bad guy Terminator has just crashed and they get up in time to see the good guys get away in a truck or something. And there's always this guy. Oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> that is the deadest motherfucker in the world. And this guy was smart enough to go, yep, not going to be a part of that. And he just runs. And uh, Speaking of old guys running away, the last appearance of Dr. Silberman uh, in this, which was, this was like, didn't need it. It no. didn't need it. I mean, I like this the is, idea. This is like like Spock's appearance in Star Trek Into Darkness, where you're just like, you shouldn't be here. But I think that's the same thing with the flamethrower, which is there's an expectation of we have to hit these beats, whether they make sense or not. The mm. flamethrower exists because by the end of the movie, you need to see half of Arnold's Terminator face. 
Sure. Yeah. That's just a trope that has to happen. Sure. That you need to see that one eye top, you know, what is that, that cyborg guy from Mortal Kombat? Kane. Yeah. Kano. 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 Yes. Yeah. yeah you got to have Kano face by the end of this movie. Kano face. And Kano. it's just expected. So, yeah, I'm going to use a weapon that's utterly ineffective, but it creates an iconic look on this guy. Yeah. It's like the same thing. Like, yeah, he's got to steal a leather jacket and that stuff. It's like, why not have Arnold in like a, a tourist t shirt? Yeah. Or, right, you know, right. walking around or something like that because he stole it from like an AMPM or something, which gets product placement <laughs> in this movie. Um,. <laughs> Well, it's just, I don't know, there's just so many things in this movie that I'll go too far. Sure. Can I, can I tell you the one thing about a, this movie that I really actually did like, and it's tiny. When Arnold, uh, when Arnold arrives for the first time, instead of being, you know, next to a dump truck or whatever in the middle of the city, he arrives in the middle of the desert, and when he steps out of the little sort of lightning ball that he comes out of, the sand around him has turned to glass. Yes. And I was like, that was as a metaphor for coming nuclear apocalypse, sand turning into glass is like, was like, oh, that's cool. That's a sweet little touch. Unfortunately, it's the sort of thing that was like, that was somebody's great idea in the art department. And then completely lost on this. It is cool to see him walk across a glass barefoot and not care, which is such a Terminator thing. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's not John McClane. Can we talk about how dated (laughs) a lot of these jokes are? In this movie, I mean, some of them are really bad. And we'll talk to the hand being talk to the hand the is biggest the biggest one. I'd, talk to the it. hand, talk to the hand, which he gets <laughs> from the stripper that he robs at the beginning. Yeah, um, I remember seeing this in theaters in two thousand and three and thinking it was dated then. Talk to the hand was a joke that the Simpsons made fun of in the late nineties, mm-hmm. and the fact that they were trying to make that this movie's um, Asta La Vista baby is pretty lame. At least he doesn't say it to the TX. Yeah, and also the there's got to be at least four different variations on "I'll be back," "She'll be back," like they like. Of course, I'm back. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's an "I lied" in this too, which is they're clearly oh, trying right. to hit you know the Arnold Schwarzenegger bingo card. Yeah, but I wish they wouldn't go for a blackout. Yeah. When you go for a blackout, it becomes too much. <laughs> I blackout and stop paying attention to this movie. Uh, just um, I do kind of like something I do like. I like MC Ganey appearing as the guard outside of the strip club. Oh yeah, yeah. You know him from like Briscoe County Junior and Lost, and he was the bad guy with the whip and Django Unchained. It's so weird. Well, speaking of that scene when he's walking in the strip club, that is like you know the iconic Arnold walking naked scene. Dude was fifty four. And I am like, I because I literally just watched this this morning again just to make sure like I had all my, th- and I'm just like looking at this like my God he's still fantastic looking in here yeah he, he I know how much work he put in just to get like that one scene down but it's just like I could not believe like you know I've you know I've seen pictures of what he looks like with a shirt off now and it is not pretty but yeah at- he's he's now now when you're in your late sixties of course it's like it, it's not the same but when he was. What, this is 2003, so he's, what, how old is he now, 68? Something like that, So yeah. he would be in his mid, early, mid-50s. He was 50, 54 when he did 54. this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, this is the re- this is the strength of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but pun intended, I suppose, <laughs> is that, like, yeah, he's he has the dedication, he was born with the gift of having that frame, he also has the dedication to be able to do, to, you know, throw his body into this role. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't know if it was a contractual thing, like Arnold gets a say because this is an Arnold movie, um, or if the writers were just this bad as they they want to give the Terminator more moments with heart, like they did in the first one, except the moments with heart are him like, I'm fighting with the virus so I can 
save John Connor. Like, it's just so... He's, like, walking around like Frankenstein, and he's doing the whole, I'm fighting the mind control bit at the end there in the hangar. And it lands so flat. It's so goofy. Um, it's... Uh, you you can't give Terminator more heart than he had in the previous movie. Well, heart has to be built on a genuine emotional resonance. Right. There has to be something there that this, makes you feel This something. movie's emotional resonance was, you saw Terminator 2, right? Yeah. yeah. It's it's the cheat, which is that it relies on you having seen another piece of media and hoping to ride its coattails. Which, uh, which you know, incidentally, this that is the logic behind, you know, a sequel or a prequel or a soft reboot that you would, you know, see in 2017, 2018. Ideally, you wanted to have something <laughs> more than just that. Yeah. I want this with slightly better special effects and also worse writing. <laughs> which seems to be the the model you get over and over again, which is that you start to wonder why you ever liked a thing. And uh, I think... Yeah. This... Uh, this this movie was that for me. I remember uh, distinctly watching this in theaters and being like, I'm not even sure if I like Terminator anymore. I I didn't have that reaction because of the ending. And we've talked a little yeah. bit about this, yeah. which is that this is a, a largely... Not great movie. I don't think it's terrible. It's a lot better than a lot of other things. It takes... I mean, it doesn't... It kind of pisses all over a lot of the... I wouldn't say mythology, but the seriousness and the stakes of what they're dealing with a little bit. But it still takes them marginally seriously. But I think the ending is this brief moment where it starts to feel like old Terminator again. Hmm. And so uh, if, if the audience hasn't seen it in, yes. at the end, they think they're going to shut down Skynet. But in reality... It was a ploy to get them into a nuclear bunker so that Catherine Brewster and John Connor would survive to be able to lead the resistance. That there was no stopping Judgment Day, that they were never going to plant bombs again like they did at the end of Terminator 2 and stop this thing. That there was no, you know, big evil computer with, you know, steaming pipes that they were going to blow up. (laughs) But just the basic idea that the sudden realization that this thing that John Connor has been actively running away from this entire movie has caught up to him and he has no choice, but to be that other John Connor now. Mm -hmm. And he needs to, needs to do it because the end of the world is happening. And I think the way that that scene is shot with, it's the first time that the music genuinely really helps the scene. Sure. Uh, The performances by Claire Danes, Nick Stahl are both very good. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that they play the missiles arcing across the sky, there's sort of that contrail behind all of them, is genuinely both kind of terrifying and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to have one great scene in your movie, it might as well be the ending. Right. <laughs> and has there ever been a movie like that where the movie is largely mediocre and forgettable except for the last three to five minutes? The Mist. I love The Mist. Yeah, this is the same sort of idea about having the rug pulled out from under you in, as far as a movie. Uh, let me put it this way. If you if you're kind of looking at the arc of Terminator One Two as setting up sort of the philosophy of the universe, sort of the driving through line, which is you know there's no fate but what we make. In this movie, you see the plaque on Sarah Connor's sarcophagus, and he punches through the plaque that says "No fate but what we make." And at the, at the and then you have Terminator saying, "Judgment Day is inevitable," right? So that effectively reverses the whole idea about why they're why the characters have any real urgency at all in the first two movies. They have urgency because, oh wait a minute, armed with knowledge, um, you can prevent catastrophe, right? So I think the I think the sort of the the more fatalistic destiny deterministic idea behind this one is a very anti Terminator 
is a very anti-Terminator message. And even though it makes for like a good dramatic reveal, I think it is it's a very un unfranchise moment for the franchise. And I think it's it's the best moment of the movie, not just because it prevents a sequel exactly like this again <laughs> with further degradation. <laughs> because if they had just blown up something in the bottom of a military bunker and there was an evil computer down there that we did the the moment at the end of the credits where I was like, oh, there's a little spark. And then the next movie is John Connor still traveling around the country with Kate Brewster. And then another Terminator shows up, stretching the right. premise of this even further. Right. Where you... How many Terminators was Skynet able to send back in time? Right before uh, it blows up? I don't know. I mean, that was the big premise at the end of the, in the first movie, which is humanity had won. That if they could just kill John Connor, they wouldn't need to fuck around with time travel. It was the fact that they had lost the war. And at the last minute, they sent a naked Arnold back in time, and then they responded by sending their own soldier back in time. And then in the second movie, I guess there was time for them to send a liquid metal guy and an Arnold, so they sent back a soldier and a, and a regular Terminator they'd reprogrammed. But it's like, how many of these Arnolds have they captured and reprogrammed, and how much time have they had? And it's just, it kind of stretches that initial premise to the point where you just kind of have to not think about it. Yeah. You just have to let... It's kind of like, what is it, Kate know. Brewster says at the end? Maybe just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Turn off your brain. I just know when I saw this movie in the theater, my sense of it, like, th this ending stuck with me in a sure. way that most, you know, most action movies just don't stick with you. And it's just, like, that sense of, it, like you said, or, um, Casey, pulling the rug out from under you, like in the mist, like I was so expecting when I was watching this the first time that they're going to find a big computer and they're going to put a stop to it because this is a theme that we're telling the same story we're telling over and over. And then when it's like, not only do we not have that, you know, last second MacGuffin save, but we see not like the worst thing that could happen. Like we are watching this, like, you know, this idyllic little farmhouse with missiles launching in the fields behind it. Right. And we see these cities just being destroyed and knowing like it's, it's such an emotional impact. And there is, I, I, I somewhat agree with you that, yeah, it just ruins the idea of what the franchise was saying before that we have the ability to control our own future, that we are not fated for this. But at the same time, if you, if you want to like, really try and give it some a little wider context like human nature almost demands that we are going to fuck this up I yeah mean, we no matter how many chances we get no matter how many times we stop it we're going to end up in the same place again because that's what we do see and that's what i don't like about post-apocalyptic movies and uh we'll probably be talking more about this next week i would imagine for for terminator genesis but like this is why this terminator being kind of a near a post-apocalyptic movie but different than what you would expect right it ends up being different in that respect because it's about it's about a kind of redemption and hope that you could have um and that there isn't necessarily being like well humans are just a virus and they're on the planet and they will destroy themselves you know i like the tension of in the second one of uh terminator saying in answer to john connor or, you know, is, are we destined for this? And he says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. You know, mm -hmm. I like the tension of that versus 
you know, like Miles Dyson's sacrifice. I, lo- I love those two things. Or the narration that Linda Hamilton has at the end where, right. you know, if a Terminator killing machine can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Right. And I kind of like the movie's ending on that note, but I think the thing I kind of like with this one is because we've had kind of a shit heel John Connor in this movie, <laughs> um, he really needs to kind of have that moment. We don't fully see him become that guy, but you see him accept that he has to become that guy. Yeah. And I I, I like that he, he's kind of floored by it, but it's like, okay, no more fucking around now. You know that dude with the scar who's kind of looking over the battlefield in the prologue of the last movie? You kind of have to be that guy now. Sure. I just wish that there were more moments that would pay that off. I would. I just wish we saw, other than the literally the last word that comes out of his mouth, you know, choking back tears. I wish we saw a little bit more of the John Connor to become that John Connor. Yeah, but nah, that's a nitpick, I suppose. So I guess that that leads us to uh, our two big questions. The first one, of course, is um, is Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines a good movie? Dave. Uh, okay. No, it's not a good movie, but I like it. I'm, I, 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 it's, I like you're, it. You're the kind of guy that likes the Asylum movies, though, so I, this could totally I be do, within your I wheelhouse of schlocky kind of, crap. Well, no, and that's <laughs> the thing. It's like, there are much better schlocky... If I want schlocky crap, there's so much better. I, I, I will gladly go watch Salvation or Genesis for that. I mean, <laughs> seriously. But there's just something about this film that just... I don't know. It's maybe it's because of what I wanted it to be, and I like can blind myself to its many, many flaws. And there, there's little moments, there's little things in the background. Like I love, you know, you described the sort of government base as looking like the set of an asylum movie, and yeah, it definitely could have been better. No, I correct. It was a Sci-Fi Channel original sci- movie, sci- sci-fi <laughs> but they're pretty close. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, overlap in that Venn diagram, <laughs> but there's seeing like the machines that they built that you can see the evolution that would eventually turn sure. into a Terminator. Like Stan, Stan Winston's art, art right there. Still. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't think we could possibly ever give enough credit to Stan Winston. Like he no. is incredible and his fingerprints are all over this franchise. Yeah. But th- there's other things like, you know, they, Maybe this is a sign of how bad this movie is. What they did best is the things they didn't do, which is they mm. didn't really go into what, you know, John Connor's command hierarchy looks like. They just drop some names and see a couple people die and say there's this relationship here and let you fill in the rest of that. And sure. I thought that was like my mind goes in place of what does that really look like? And, you know. As we learn from the movie that you guys aren't going to do because it didn't have Arnold, but from Salvation is you don't actually want to go there. You don't yeah. actually want to see that. You want that sort of more nebulous, there's something there and we're going to hint at it. And there's a fair amount of that in this movie. And I think that's it's where its strengths are. It had this stuff in the background. You know, Mike, like you were saying, there's this subplot of this virus that's taking over the world and shutting down TVs and phones and guests. And they don't really like push that it's just something that's happening wherever they're going in the background and that's something it did really well and because of moments like that i still actually like it i don't think you guys are wrong on any of your criticisms on the goofiness 
You know, we didn't even get into the uh, Sergeant, Sergeant Candy, Candy scene. Yeah. I was just going to say, you, you, we couldn't get by without mentioning <laughs> the goofy extra scene where it's uh, Arnold with a, with a campy, over-the-top southern accent. And Ooh. then Jack Noseworthy as the scientist. Jack Noseworthy. There, there's a name nobody knows except me. <laughs> but, but no, like, maybe that's a, a, a sense that they even knew there was some, there were lines too far that, you know, they, they filmed and then it looked well, like, somebody no. along the line knew. Because <laughs> They filmed it. <laughs> they filmed it, but they did not actually put that scene in. But, they did the dialogue. They filmed that shit. <laughs> but I think, like, the way the movie opens with an off-the-grid John Connor who has a destiny that he doesn't have to fulfill anymore. You're the failed messiah, Mike, that you were saying. And there's some really great moments, like, where you're thinking of, like, what is it like to live in a world that shouldn't exist? You were prepared for a different world, and you put a stop to that, but now you still have to exist in the world that is... And then the end of, you know, this is actually happening that, you know, we've been fighting this for so long, but the fact is that this is a reality and this is not just a fantasy anymore. And this is something I'm going to have to face for those characters. Like the be like, like I said at the beginning, it's got a strong beginning and a strong end and a whole bunch of macho bullshit in the middle that doesn't matter. Well, that's, well, I'll say that this movie was awful. It, again, <laughs> it's like a direct to video sequel that, for somehow they were able to raise enough money to get Arnold on board. Um, there's a lot of money on the screen, for sure. Um, but it will forever to be known as the bad Terminator movie. You know, so. Only the bad Terminator <laughs> movies? <laughs> At that point. Well, in 2003, I was like, oh, of course it was the bad. Up until Salvation, it was the, the bad Terminator movie. It is the bad Terminator movie until the next Terminator movie. <laughs> <laughs> until the next. That's, yes. not a, that's not a good trend. No. <laughs> but it is a continuing one. Mike? Oh, um, I don't hate this movie, and I I almost think that asking if Terminator Three is a good movie is an unfair question because I I mean I don't hate it, but I think that unfairness kind of comes out of the fact that it apes Terminator Two so closely. Yeah, that when you match the structure and the characters and the moments and the iconography of a really good movie so closely that nothing looks good in that comparison when you compare it. And I think that we wouldn't think of this as a really shitty Arnold movie if um, if it wasn't a Terminator movie. We'd think of this as a mediocre Arnold movie. We'd I think if it, if it wasn't a Terminator movie and didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it and still did all of the things that it tried to do, you would think that it was a embarrassing copycat trash derivative movie yeah and i think we'd think of this as like this is kind of what we think of a lot of late 90s arnold that there's a lot of kind of derivative stuff that they're having a little too much fun with arnold tropes that uh there isn't a real strong emotional core but i think that because it plays that safe so safe throughout the entire movie again the ghostbusters 2 comparison sure that you know Terminator, it forgets what Terminator 2 really did. And this is what it should have copied from Terminator 2. That Terminator 1 is a simple sci-fi horror slasher film. That a robot from the future is trying to kill this one woman. And is chasing her across Los Angeles. And the second movie flips the script, not just by making Arnold the good guy rather than the bad guy, but actually has the main characters sort of flip the script themselves. Yeah. And turn the, the fight back on Skynet and say, no... You want to destroy me in the past? Fuck you. I'll destroy you in the past. <laughs> and have them actually go on the offense rather yeah. than thinking, hey, let's fight him in a factory and we get to escape at the end and do this again in 10 years. Um, 
I'll get you next time, Sky. Yeah. <laughs> shake your fist at the sky. Terminator 3 could have flipped it again and say, let's go old school and bring Arnold back as the killer again. They could have done that, and that yeah. would have been a lot more interesting. I, I th- think so. I think you're right. I this th- is this is the thing that I'm going to come back to again with the next movie, but uh, they want to go nostalgic, but they're only nostalgic for Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, again, that, that question of whether it's unfair to judge it, I, it's okay in places. <laughs> it's okay. Um, the, the, hu- the humor, again, really falls flat, and you get things like talk to the hand, and you get things like... Uh, it's, the whole, I mean, a lot of those sound effects, again, like the squeaking crane on the thing, and it just skips just over that line into spoofy, mm-hmm. that it just becomes something that I'm like, uh, it doesn't become outright embarrassing to watch, but it gets kind of close in places, and I think that there's that real question with of that, that ending, because the ending is so strong, it's one of the few places where the music and the performances... And Nick Stahl's narration actually yeah. managed to rival Linda Hamilton's and have a real emotional resonance that we're, we're looking at something that could be a lot more exploitative than it really is. We could do some more shots of, you know, I guess you could say the Roland Emmerich style city destruction. Right. But it's really just from orbit that you see these little yeah. starbursts of nuclear explosions just all kind of dotting the planet. And it's all silent against the music. And you just see the arc of the missiles coming down and I kind of love that restraint in a movie that is so bad at restraint in other mm, places. True. But it's not enough to save the movie. No. And I'd say that on, if there's any recommendation for Terminator 3, and this is the one that I usually give people, is just explain to them why they're in the bunker and give somebody a YouTube clip of the last five minutes. Mm. And you've already seen the part that's worth watching. It's not enough to save the full movie. It's not enough to spend two hours on it. But I'll watch that five minutes again. Okay. Well, then this leads for the last question. Is this, Dave, is this Arnold movie canon? Is Is this a good Arnold movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Is it a good Arnold movie? I don't think it's a good Arnold movie because it doesn't, like, they only used him in... As that sort of nostalgia of good Arnold Terminator, like they didn't use him as they didn't use any of his physical gifts except for one scene where he's carrying this um, coffin full of guns, and then he also (laughs) has like a giant mini gun, which apparently even that thing was so heavy that he needed a like um, Steadicam uh, frame to hold it, and then they had to digitally edit that out. But like other than that one scene, there is nothing that really made like. Because the moments that should be most Arnold take that that silly um, toilet fight where they're pounding <laughs> each other fight. with urinals and all the- so many times Arnold was fighting the bad guy in a bathroom. I wonder why that is. And, and the thing is, like they used mostly digital doubles, and digital doubles back then were not that good. Like no. it is really jarring when suddenly there's Arnold and dust all over him, and then suddenly there is this cartoony. It's not much better than the burly brawl from the second matrix movie oh, like it's that it interesting took, took me out of it that much so if you have arnold particularly like his last real chance because this is the last starring role before he became governor yep so this is the last chance we had for him to do arnold things and he didn't in this film very much i yeah. think he wanted 
the emotional Arnold, but that's not what we're here for. We're here for the terrifying, physically gifted monster, and we didn't get that. So I would say, no, this is not a good Arnold movie. I think for better or worse, this is a good... I think this is in the Arnold canon because I think it's Terminator. Mm -hmm. Because I think it has... Even though it's not a great Terminator movie, I think he uh, he plays the character that he established. He's able to do the things that good action movie Arnold does, which is carry huge weapons and dispatch the bad guys and have quips. Um, I don't think it's amazing. It's certainly not among the best. But I still think it's an Arnold Arnold movie mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, like a last stand or a sabotage is not an Arnold kind of a good Arnold movie in that respect. So even though I don't like it, I will begrudgingly say, well, yes, it still is in that mode. There's enough of that sort of mana, that essence left for it to be an Arnold movie. I can at best say sort of, (laughs) it feels like a a movie that's trying to be an Arnold movie or trying to be like an Arnold movie. Then I don't know. I guess it, it has that same, it does to Arnold what it also does to Terminator two. Which is, it feels like a more cuddly, watered down, we're trying to evoke something, but not create something new, which is why he keeps saying variations again of I'll be back throughout this movie. Um, the thing that made Arnold funny in Terminator 2... But the 2, fact that he is doing that, I yeah. think, says that he's still in a space, that Arnold is still in a space where he's sort of like box office champion, yeah. you know, larger than life personality, and in a very iconic in a very iconic role. Because I think he's actually probably having more fun here than anyone else. Oh, I'm sure he has a blast. Yeah. I mean, clearly, that's why he did that whole stunt on in California with a wax museum, is that right. I think he will never turn down an opportunity to dress like the Terminator and say catchphrases. <laughs> that unlike a lot of movie stars, he really loves this shit. And I, but I, I think the thing that makes Arnold really funny as the Terminator in the second one is that he's not trying to be funny. That he's being a robot who is being taught by a 10-year-old how to act human. And a 10-year-old will teach you to say things like, chill out, dickwad. Which are, <laughs> it's not a thing he's going to come to independently. <laughs> and I think when the when the material works in this, Arnold works, that I think he does better with it than just about any other actor, that if this had been a really late-stage Stallone sequel to, like, Demolition Man or something... This would not have been as good. I think Arnold has that sort of natural charisma that sort of punches through material, which is why we enjoy him in a lot of schlock. Um, There's a charm there. Um, The material just doesn't give him a lot to work with. Um, He doesn't get to say things that are particularly good. I think the most interesting thing he gets to do, though the writing isn't particularly great, is when he's being sort of brainwashed by the TX and he gets to smash up that car, and you see him. He actually acts a lot more like a robot. It's not like emotional panic. It's like contradictions hitting each other, and I think he does pretty good in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, if it were any other great actor trying to do that, you'd be like, well, that was an embarrassing thing you had to choke oh, through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if it were, yeah, if it were, <laughs> if it were Michael Bassfinder, then it would be... Yeah, it's... Know. It just doesn't... That one's for you, Sam Mulvey! Thank you! <laughs> but I just... Most of this is not Arnold's fault, though. No. He, I took, mean, the, he took the money and ran. Yeah, this is that's, not a... That's what this movie was. Yeah, I just... Uh, <laughs> I don't. I really don't know what to say other than it's just sort of mediocre with a great ending. Uh, so I guess getting to that, again, thank you 
Dave Brulette for joining us with uh, Hands Free Football. Absolutely. If you're going to give us a pitch real quick, uh, plug something you're working on. Let us know about your podcast. So, uh, actually, we are just going to the off season, so it's going to be a little while before you're going to hear regular stuff. But my wife and I do a podcast where we talk about soccer, and we try to talk about it more for entry level for people who aren't fans. And we try to talk, we don't talk tactics. We don't talk like, you know, plays. We try to talk wider philosophy of soccer, um, these sort of iconic episodes. Is our first episode, the Team of Theseus, where we discuss the idea of what makes a team. If you got players going in and out, kind of like the ship of Theseus, you know, oh. what's still a team at the end, like five years from now when you don't have any of the same players, that sort of thing. So that's Hands Free Football. You can find it and handsfreefootball.com and or on Twitter at handsfreefooty. And yeah, we have fun there. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, so much. Thanks, Dave. Absolutely. Great having you here. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. And we will catch you guys next week with the fourth and final week of Terminator Month. Oh, uh, <laughs> we're almost done. We're almost no, done. No. It almost feels like lancing a boil at this point. <laughs> so we'll catch you guys next week on Terminator Month. Podcast de la Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. Hey! Hey! Are you going to pay for that? Talk to the hand. Okay!